Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Our guest today is another incredibly prolific actor. Xander Berkeley is best known for his roles in Sid and Nancy, Candyman, The Mentalist, and The Walking Dead. Berkeley rose to fame playing all manner of villains on TV. He says it was a blessing and a curse. It allowed him to have a career, but casting directors worried that giving him genuinely nice guy type roles would send the wrong message about the character that maybe that nice character had ulterior motives. Now, I came to be a fan of Mr. Xander Berkeley after watching The Mentalist, where he plays Sheriff Thomas McAllister. I cannot recommend The Mentalist highly enough for you mystery lovers out there. I mean, I'm... I'm midway through season six, and I started watching it two months ago. I'm not a big, big binger. And now I'm to where I'm like watching it every week, one a week, because I do not want to uh, want to spoil it. I'm through the main storyline that carries the first five, uh, six and a half seasons, and now I'm slowing up. It is on Amazon Prime right now for your quarantine binge watching, and maybe not binge watching like me, but... Be warned, this episode of Talk for Two contains major spoilers for The Mentalist and Xander Berkeley's role. Now, one would think it's easy to play a villain, right? Show up, growl, scowl, get paid, go home, right? Wrong. The work of finding the humanity and relatability in these nasty characters is the real challenge for Berkeley. Now, Xander is a true actor's actor. He has done it all. He's played it all more than just villains on stage, film, and television. And as you'll soon see, just like many of the characters he plays, there is more to Xander Berkeley than meets the eye. Here now to tell us why moving to Maine is a huge career step, our interview with Xander Berkeley. Xander Berkeley, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you, sir? I'm very well indeed, thanks. How about yourself? Oh, I'm great. Just staying home still. Longest two weeks ever. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been doing since the quarantine started? How have you been passing the time? Well, um, as you may or may not know, I I relocated uh, exactly two years ago with my wife and two daughters who are now... 10 and 13 to the beautiful state of Maine and uh, we're right on on the water here so we have woods and water and and uh, all kinds of wonderful natural diversions to take our mind off the uh, the crisis that's going on out there so we have it better than most and thank our lucky stars we escaped LA when we did Mm -hmm. mm-hmm first week we left we had the the whole place exploded into flames that went on all summer and then again the next summer so it was almost like um, it it just felt like our timing couldn't have been better I I feel for all my friends that are still there that's the main thing I miss about Los Angeles all my friends that are still there why Maine why Maine well we're looking to uh, entice the state to bring tax incentives for film here Mm. And uh, so confident are we that that they will uh, succumb to our logic (laughs) that we have uh, gotten two other properties beside the one that we live on uh, to develop specifically for the purpose of uh, film production. Uh, 
and not just film production, but also uh, a wonderful escape off the grid uh, to think outside the box in um, a little dairy farm from the 1820s that uh, we've been working on for the past. We, we got that about six, seven years ago and um, spent our summers there for the last for four summers before getting this place two years ago and just fell so in love with the area and uh, it's so cinematic and charismatic and and i'm i've always been a history buff and um really interested in telling early american stories and i've become increasingly so along with all kinds of other stories maybe even horror stories <laughs> mm. well heaven but, knows your career you've played Many a villain, many a different kind of character in a variety of thrillers and, and horror stories. So that sounds about perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I've worked with so many wonderful people over the years. And uh, and I, I used to have dinner parties and salons in, in, in Los Angeles for years, sort of like, uh, I, guess, like a, I guess a couple's service, but not for couples, but for creatives. Uh, to see who gets along well with whom mm -hmm. um, among cinematographers and production designers and actors and writers and directors. and So um, I've got a great list of, of wonderful people that have all said, sign me up. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're, we're moving forward, looking at the end of COVID, but in the meantime, it's become increasingly sort of attractive to people because it's a place where people could come and work uh, at, at greater distances mm -hmm. and tell stories back when social distancing was uh, kind of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about you and your career. Everybody knows The Walking Dead. Everybody knows The Mentalist, Air Force One, all of these fantastic credits that you have. How did it start for you? How did you get interested and say, I want to be an actor and I'm going to make a career out of this? Well, oddly, you know, not to sound like I'm trying to drive a point home too, too completely, but I, I guess it goes all the way back to early childhood. Um, mm -hmm. My mother knew how to sew, and we lived in the countryside, and I loved nothing more than having a costume and going out into the woods and playing make-believe, not so much to perform at all. Um, but to activate my imagination and specifically, well, not just time travel, but also I was, I was around a lot of accents when I was growing up and that the, uh, the sort of, I was so intrigued by different accents and the stories of, of different places that people came from. So I think I was just drawn to, uh, the idea of transformation and the idea of, of, uh, traveling through time and, and in a way as a child you completely believe if you put on a Robin Hood costume that you are back in that time and or whatever the costume might have been and I started I did a play I played Thomas Jefferson in third grade and my mother helped make the ruffles and everything and I just I felt I was I was he as I walked out at <laughs> four foot two or three and um, you know it just it never escaped me, and I, it's like always been one of my favorite parts of every job I did was getting in the costume. So it, it goes back to that. But then in in high school, I was kind of adopted by uh, a troupe. Uh, I was in New Jersey 
in the country, about an hour side outside of New York. Uh, and um, there was a, a company of people that had worked in the theater in New York and were loving being out in nature uh, in New Jersey and um, started the theater company. And, and I was, it's like I joined the circus at 15 and, and never left. And, and I started, so I, I started training in experimental uh, theater with improvisation um, and then immediately after started to train classically and went to college and did that and left college early with the support of my parents because they saw that I was uh, I was never going to be able to shake the acting and that I was pretty good at it, I guess, pretty young. And, and uh, my father's offered to send me to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts or to study in New York or to stay in college. And I, I chose New York at the time. It was a really vital place. And um, I was able to extend that money because New York was cheap then in the 70s. <laughs> Not so much yeah, anymore. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, and there were so many great people to study with uh, privately as well as I, I went to HB Studios and sort of got a full across the boards, uh, um, theater education and movement and voice and everything. But, uh, and then I studied privately with somebody who had taught at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts for 25 years and somebody else who had uh, worked at the Moscow Art Theater. And I, I just absorbed everything I could and then started doing some plays and kind of got discovered uh, pretty quickly by somebody who was moving from the East Coast office of William Morris to the West Coast and brought me with them and and uh, and did, like, you know, Mommy Dearest and the rest is history. Yeah. Film and television history. Do you have a, you've had such a diverse career and continue to have as you work on new projects, but in your career highlights, is there a favorite role or is it, or is that like picking a child? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's like when you're still in the process of having children, I guess. <laughs> I mean, because you're you just love the. I guess you'd have to uh, just love children, um, mm -hmm. which I do. And you know, it's um, it's kind of thing where yeah, there's a few that really stand out. There was one in the theater where I, 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 I the, the the play that I kind of got discovered from was was one of those bell ringers that was just such an extraordinary experience with everybody that you're working with, with embodying the character and and what it did for your career, sort of in combination. Um, and there have been those sort of things like the character in Sid and Nancy, the you know the drug dealer, even despicable though he was, had this kind of trickster, sort of jester aspect to him as a street person. And getting to uh, go to New York and do research and absorb the uh, impressions of of junkies on the street is, you know, it's it, it uh, felt like that was one of my earlier films, and it, but it was really a gritty film and a kind of a great film. It was Roger Deakins, a famed cinematographer, and uh, it was Gary Oldman's first film, and. You know, we all bonded. It was another one of those ones where just a, a senior sort of event took place where everybody just kind of fell for everybody and, and the creative process together. And, and 
you know, there have been so many of those, and even in obscure films, like I did a film called The Cherry Orchard in, in Bulgaria at, that was filmed at the ex-king of Bulgaria's estate. Um, and not many people saw it because the director was in his 80s and he shot it, he, he edited it in a very old-school rhythm. He had directed Zorba the Greek and Electra, Iphigenia at Aulis, and all these great films in the 60s, and he was still hanging in there and, and uh, trying to, you know, and, and was still being inc incredibly creative and created this incredible environment for us to all bring the Cherry Orchard to life as a film. And there are people from all over the world working on the production. And, and again, everybody just clicked. And uh, it felt like one of those experiences that you knew you'd never forget and you'd stay friends with everybody forever. And, and so it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's not as much the character as the overall experience that just stays in your heart forever. Um, well so I've had a lot of fun characters. I love playing the maestro in, in the film The Maestro. And, yeah. And that was, a, to me, a, a wonderful opportunity to play somebody that was filled with light and goodness. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, because you do get pegged as much as I tried not to get pegged even whilst playing bad guys a lot um it's it's just well how did that hard. happen how did that happen to you well yeah i took a dare you know there was a casting director that said to me early on when i looked like tomorrow's lettuce <laughs> uh said uh well let's face it you're never gonna play the bad guy and i went well because i had already played in in repertory theater, uh, this character Curly in Of Mice and Men, and she said, you should just take that off your resume. And I go, what, what on earth for? I, I can play bad guys. <laughs> and, <laughs> Curly's a good um, bad guy. Yeah. You know, when you look, when, but you know, it's funny, because then I came out to Hollywood, and I just had a, I guess, a certain edge uh, coming from New York, and an intensity in the eyes and, and I'd, I'd read a lot of stuff and and I guess I had a, something that a lot of actors younger actors maybe didn't have in the way of a an aesthetic weight that um, that kind of ran counter to casting me in the sweet young thing roles that, that were uh, of that era that that were what I was being sent out on a lot and I was just missing these kind of lead roles and things. And so I targeted very deliberately. I asked my agents, I said, look, they've got a different bad guy on every episode of television every week. I just want to get used to working with cameras. I have all this theater experience. I want to start to see, and I've been as a makeup artist from early on as well. And so I love the idea of transformation. And so I wanted to see what I could pull off in the way of transformation on film still be believable and the the opportunity really was in in the villain because uh you know even back then they were already hollywood was sensitive and and uh, trying to be progressive and not cast uh, black guys and latinos just as bad guys and mm -hmm. uh you know they weren't casting them enough by any means but they were trying not to stereotype and so being the uh, sort of intense, odd, white young dude uh, who had 
chops and I could play different accents. I could be the German terrorist. I could be the psychotic. I could be the uh, the, the the wounded, vulnerable. Uh, you know, and so there were a whole wide range of characters open to me in in the in the villain you know capacity on television at the at the time that I was just coming into LA and and so I went for it and then I guess a lot of people saw those things here and there and the mm -hmm. cumulative effect was that our the irony I remember one of my favorite uh, casting directors of all time uh who sadly passed away way too soon um it was was casting uh I think it was around Terminator 2, and, and, or maybe it was right after that, and she brought me back in for something else and and, and said, well, let's face it, Sandy, you're never going to play the nice guy next door. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. I think I've heard this before. <laughs> this was the opposite. Why won't I, you know, and I, and I can remember, like, Is there... even good friends, you know, they're, they're, they're because of the cumulative association, people would think, no, you, people will just immediately suspect something is up. And so I could play that they would cast me as, oh, oh, he turns out not to be bad. But people were afraid that if you were supposed to like me, that some taint, some stain from the other roles I'd done would bleed through. And, and I think that the, the maestro is one example of how that that wasn't true. If you're supposed to like the guy, you'll like him, because I would be giving off a different vibe. If sure. You're supposed to like. Me. Is there something but, to be said for finding a commercial niche that gets you cast a lot, or does it get you as the artist stuck in a creative rut? Is there something to be said for uh, finding a, a niche like a role where you can get like you were cast? constantly cast as the bad guy? Is well, there? Is that yeah. a fortune or is it a double-edged sword? Because well, it was a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I never stopped working. There was work. I was right. There was a, a different bad guy on every episode of television, and I did get. I, I and then at a certain point, I did leave and stop doing. TV was pretty dreadful in the eighties, mm -hmm. so I took off at a certain point, pretty early on, and went to Europe for a year just to take impressions in and to reconnoiter myself in terms of what my aims were. And when I came back, um, I focused to have a very small, loud creature bicycling past. Um, okay. And uh, when I went back is when I decided I was just going to focus on film and only do TV when I was offered it instead of having to go chasing it. And, or if it was something that, uh, was particularly interesting or the tr the show was particularly trendy but I was getting offered after I started doing more movies um, and and Sid and Nancy helped a lot in fact just Alex Cox was a very in vogue director at the time and then Mike Figgis uh, and Stephen Frears and other British directors certainly were familiar with him and wanted to put me in their movies and I ended up doing four movies with Alex and four movies with Mike Figgis and being in a kind of ensemble uh, situation. And so I, I was just, I, I loved traveling. And uh, so I i took those films that were on location. I took films that were with uh, 
great directors who I knew would, would have great cinematographers and editors and stuff on board. And I could just be learning and growing about filmmaking the way the kinds of films I wanted to make um, when I grew up. I'm finally growing up and preparing <laughs> to do that. Um, but I just, I, I just really enjoyed, I, I guess it was a double-edged sword in that I never, I sort of sabotaged fame um, in a lot of ways by not creating a, a more identifiable commodity mm -hmm. um, because I changed character so much and transformed. And I, and I was willing to sacrifice my vanity in the, in the playing of bad guys. I'd made a little doubt of myself that if I were going to play certain types of despicable people that I wanted to make them palpably despicable mm. so that, so that nobody would find themselves drawn to behave that way in real life. And I had almost a superstition about it. Like, be careful, don't make them too cool or too sexy or too uh, intriguing. Just be very careful because you never want to... And in the process, I think I stayed true to my aim, my little vow, noble yes, vow did. to myself. Yes, you but did. I also created... To, it it made people less inclined to see me in appealing roles. Mm -hmm. And they were afraid that those things that I was revealing, um, that actors a lot of times, whether it's conscious or unconscious, don't want themselves to be unappealing. Right. And they distance themselves. And somewhere or another, they give a nod to the audience by overplaying it or by trying to make them cool or whatever is a, a barrier from showing the ugliness or the vulnerability yeah. or the uh, despicable repellent qualities of a person. Unknown caller. Because actors a lot of times want to be liked. And, you know, it's a lot of times why people become actors, they need that um, affirmation. And so it's going really against nature to, to make those choices whereby you will really not be liked. And so that did have a double edge because I still wanted to be able to play all kinds of likable people too. Yeah. And I came close. I, I was in, in the running for a lot of stuff uh, in, in the sitcom world in the, in the eighties as well. And I would get right up to it, but I did notice that I would sometimes sabotage it How? at the last minute, uh, just by making it too real or too heavy. Yeah. Um, so that I would maintain street cred with the producers, directors, and casting directors. I wouldn't come across poorly, but that it would be like, well, I don't know if we're really comfortable putting that in people's living rooms once a week. Sure. And if it's supposed to be a light. Yeah. If it's, if it's standard light fare, because I, I really did my, the thing I really was passionate about was independent film. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love doing those big box office films when they were films like Terminator 2 and Apollo 13 and A Few Good Men and Air Force One and Gattaca even was a pretty big budget movie. And those kind of films, Gattaca is almost like a crossover because there was a link from Sid and Nancy to Safe. Todd Haynes had seen Sid and Nancy and always wanted to cast me in in completely a diametrical 
direction, like as a super straight, regular dude. Sure. Because I was so idiosyncratic and dark in in Sid and Nancy, and and then he did so in Save, and then uh, Andrew Nichol, who cast uh, Gattaca, who wrote, and, mm-hmm. you know, he wrote Truman Show, and his his reward for giving it up to uh, the studio to choose another director was that he would get to direct Gattaca, which he'd written already at that time. And he wanted to cast me in the doctor almost before he knew anybody else he was got. He had me in mind for the doctor, partly because of that ambivalence, like you don't know if he's good or bad, but keep a little suspense there. Sure. And, but also partly an homage to Todd Haynes, in extraordinary atmosphere, uh, his brilliance as a filmmaker, I think, and uh, many filmmakers and audience film goers ag- agree that Todd was is brilliant and in safe. He created such an atmosphere that I think Andrew Nichol wanted to bring some of the atmosphere of safe along with me as an actor into Gattaca. Yeah, and and and. You know, those are the kind of choices, being around those kinds of people, even, you know, Bernard Rose and Candyman, the only real horror film I allowed myself to do at the time, was that one because it felt so not schlocky and like, it felt like a high art film because he was so intelligent and what he wanted to do with the film was so interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's held up really well and thought of well by yeah. film critics and stuff. One of the TV shows I have to ask you about, because this is, I'd known of your work, Walking Dead, etc., etc., but the one that said, I want to interview him because I want to know what happened here. Red John, The Mentalist. My favorite mm-hmm. role of yours out of any. Because you don't see it coming, and spoiler alert for anybody listening, and I'll put a spoiler alert at the beginning of this episode, you turn out to be the six-season-long villain that uh, the series protagonist, Patrick Jane, the wonderful Simon Baker, plays. And I know that you found out a couple years, or they knew a couple years before, that it was going to be your character, McAllister, that was going to be Red John. How were you told? Had you been playing him like he was maybe a serial killer? What was your approach, and how did you find out that you were going to be this, this villain? Well, you know, I I was offered uh, the part in, it was the first episode after the pilot. Yeah. And David Nutter actually, I think, called me up. I can't remember. He had I'd done an episode of, uh, of the X-Files, one of the early sort of defining X-Files episodes, Ice, um, with him directing. And we'd really hit it off, and, and he called or had my email or something I can't remember uh, asking me would you would you please do the first episode I I'd love to have you in it um, just again they sort of to bring an atmosphere or a weight to the, the thing or whatever it was just he liked me as an actor and I read the role and I immediately thought oh my gosh I get to do something kind of comedic because I did not see <laughs> McAllister as being even remotely uh, red John, but I knew I would have to give misleads because he was a red herring, mm-hmm. and I thought it was a really cool show. And that 
it offered several options, even in the first episode, of who might be this, you know, horrific villain. And so you you can create menace in just a moment here and there, and we pick the moments when and where I would do that. But that primarily I was, you know, this a, a sheriff in a town like Napa Valley, where he's not a guy with a lot of money, but he has this. He grew up watching cowboy movies and thinks of himself as a sheriff in town, and he gets to boss rich people around, and that, he likes that. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe his resentment towards the rich people, and you know, just this little boy playing, you know, in a grown man's body playing out this like I'm a big shot kind of, and that that there was a buffoonery to that that really appealed to me without commenting on the character but just sort of allowing him to be fun in that respect like one of those kind of guys um who you you know and i also wanted to make him a little likable too yeah um because you know i wasn't saying he's a bad guy for that that he's just sort of funny and bring humor to it and because i just sort of saw it was written into the script that there was humor and and menace and so i love that dance of being able to maybe bring both and maybe that's why David because I'd sort of done that with the X-Files episode brought me in but then I I, I never thought of, uh, much of I really enjoyed working on the show and hit it off with everybody but then um, I was doing some really odd you know, adult swim actually playing a cowboy uh, my friend Paul Shear had a show he was doing and um, I got, you know, the message from my manager that, that uh, they, they wanted to use a picture of mine on the show. Hmm. On, on, uh, and I said, well, what picture do they want to use? And, what? and uh, well, I don't have that, uh, that, that mustache anymore, but actually I've got a fake mustache on now playing <laughs> this cowboy. <laughs> I took a selfie. Send it to them. Do they want this picture? Do they want to use my resume picture? Do they want to use a picture of me as a still from the original episode that I did? I don't know. What do they want to do? And they did, and they paid me for it. Hmm, curious. I um, wonder what that is all about. And I never knew which picture they'd chosen or anything else. Paycheck for it. Huh. And then, then they brought the character back, you know, maybe... Three three weeks later, suddenly I get this offer to to do a, a seven episode arc or something as McAllister coming back, and that I would become one of the suspects, um, having been established as a suspect in the beginning. They were they were going to do some sort of roundup, and again I was going to get to be the red herring. I thought, you know that. I would get to mislead people into thinking I might be Red John, but I, I never thought for a second I would be. And then the day came that it was revealed, and and uh, and I, I remember taking him, asking to take a meeting with with Bruno Heller, the the mastermind behind the show, who was very mysterious and had his own sort of office upstairs in the back lot, you know, from Warner Brothers, mm. and uh, and I. Thoroughly enjoyed meeting him. Really bright guy. Immediately impressed by him. And I said, so I, I feel a, a, a certain obligation to provide 
something in the episodes that are left once I am revealed as Red John, now that I know, because I certainly wasn't playing it with this in mind, and I just, McAllister's kind of a goofball, and you set up such a, a profound and intense and dark, heavy, heavy, that I, I want to do it justice. And he said, well, McAllister's all a mask, you see. And you'll be lifting the mask. And if you could just be yourself, um, your voice. He, he is this British actor that is kind <laughs> of an incredible voice himself. And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's kind of creepy. You want me to be the guy? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want to be that. I've really been trying to avoid that. I've been trying to walk straight and narrow and film television so that I wouldn't get pegged um, as that bad guy. And so I was a little uh, I was a little torn about it. I mean, I was honored. And, and you know, we as we talked, we realized that I could have fun with it. But that, that I knew that he, that, that, that mainly he was saying that the, the McAllister character was a, a, a disguise for Red John. And that he's been using that to hide behind, and, and this the last person you'd expect is a, a local sort of cop who's sheriff who seems to be doing a good job in his community. Absolutely. I don't know, just one way or another, an up, upstanding guy. How could he be head of the Blake Corporation? How would he have, you know, there were a number of reasons he'd chosen me, and but he flattered me at the time by saying, I essentially have chosen the six uh, suspects that we've among many that we've had on the show of the years, uh, one of my favorites. And then I, I simply picked the one that was my most favorite. And that was you. And <laughs> I was like, well, I'm extremely flattered, and I, I really hope I can do justice to... Uh, well, you did. Now, when the camera was on Simon, and, and it's just this beautiful moment where he kills Red John in a chokehold, were you on the ground even though the camera was up at him? I mean, did they work it out so that you were there for him, or or was you, or were you not there for that close up? I'm just I'm just curious. Do you I'm remember? I'm trying to remember. I certainly remember. He he was certainly there for all of my close ups. Because sure. his hands were in the frame. And I can't remember, you know, at that point, Simon had been doing the show for six years and had very much figured out how he liked to do things. Mm -hmm. And so he he might well have, you know, used me up to the point that I was in the shot and then just uh, moved to uh, choking the camera. Um you know, sort of doing it. so it was from his POV, you know, my POV of him without my being there. Maybe there wasn't room yeah. for the, I, I imagine it was the the cameraman lying down, shooting sure. straight up. Sure. And it, I, I don't remember there having built a platform so that he could be below me and shooting up onto Patrick over me. So I think that they did do it with, uh, with me standing by and just reading the lines off camera. Wow. It's so wonderful. Before we let you go, real quick, Walking Dead, 
part of two pop culture phenomenons. You called the mentalist a pop culture phenomenon to be a part of the walking dead culture. I know you've done some fan cons here and there. What's it like to, to be a part of that lore too? walking dead? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real cult phenomenon. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird because to me, I, like I said, I've had this approach avoidance with fame and I, I, I never wanted to be too identified with one character. So I could always convince an audience I was a totally different character the next time out. Um, and that, that's a double-edged sword all of its own. And, and and a, a tightrope that you can fall off on either side of, but that was that was the dance I did over the years, and 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 I was kind of like a little bit blown away by the uh, the intensity of the fan following for that show, and I it it, it was also a double edged sword in that respect because I I did sacrifice my vanity entirely in the playing of that character because he was a coward, he was sniveling, he was he, he was. All the things that the walk, the hardcore Walking Dead fans don't want anybody to be, as well as being, uh, you know, sort of sleazy and and thinking he was a big shot, and the, the, the character was such a douche in many ways. <laughs> uh, I, I I loved playing him, and I had a ball doing it. But the the fan base is sometimes so rapidly, uh, you know, devoted to certain characters that if you were or if you went against the ethos of the show, which is a certain sort of bravery and <clears throat> heroism, and and uh, you, you could really catch the sort of uh, they they didn't like you, <laughs> and they didn't, and yeah. there were a lot of them that had a really hard time separating the character from the actor. So that was bizarre, mm -hmm. um, but. Um, but it was super fun to be a part of the show because such great people were involved. And <clears throat> I always sing Andrew Lincoln's praises because I've just, I've worked with a lot of number ones on the call sheet, we call them. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen anybody who was as kind and, and considerate of others. And, and, uh, so like a, just like a great leader for inspiring people to be, devoted to working on the show and to work to give a hundred percent and then some to every shot and and to feeling like everybody's pulling on the same end of the rope like everybody's on the team together and uh, he's just an extraordinary human being and and uh, he it really you know that it sets that bar from the top and and everybody I think fell in line with that and so it was a really magical atmosphere to, to work in with the, the level of devotedness and, and positive energy and, and uh, family, family vibe. Love that. To it. Absolutely love that. Xander, I could talk to you for a whole other hour. I got to tell you, but I got something right behind you at five o'clock. My time. It's well, it's your time too. You're, you're an East coaster now. So yeah, <laughs> now I am. Uh -huh. <laughs> do people recognize well, real quick before we go, do people recognize you on the street? in Maine, like, because I would think it's unusual to have a celebrity. It, it, yeah, there's partly a lack of expecting it on yeah. one hand, and there's the second um, sort of a reticence to uh, invade people's privacy. Right. Um, there's a really kind of, like, rugged individuality and a great deal of sort of East Coast gentility 
in in people here in combination that uh, I love. I just love it. So if they know, sometimes they don't let on, and a lot of times they don't expect. And I'm in the COVID mode. I, I keep growing my my. See, my daughters are coming of age, and so I'm. <laughs> The boys are starting to come around, so I'm just growing my beard really long, and I'm sitting out front on the porch with a shotgun just going, you better not hurt my daughter, or I'm going to have to hurt you. And I don't look <laughs> like myself. <laughs> I love that. Xander, please come back. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Have a great time. Thank you, Xander. It was such a pleasure talking with you, and I really hope that after this quarantine, when you have a project, hopefully a project that takes place up in Maine where you're doing that tax credit situation, hopefully that works out for you. Hopefully you'll come back on. I'd love to have you back to talk about it. We wish you well as you do that uh, in Maine, and, and hopefully you get the, the state government to agree to, you, agree to that. That is it for us today. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can find us in iTunes, Stichter, and on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at talk for 2 or at talk for 2 pod on Instagram. And of course, reach out to me at talk for 2 at gmail, excuse me, at talk for 2 cast at gmail.com. That's T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O-C-A-S-T at gmail.com, and of course our website, T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O dot com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>